I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Join me on a quest to find awe and wonder in all nature, human or wild, vast or small, encounters that move us beyond words. The moment I walked through the doors of the convention center, I, I just felt completely overwhelmed because in an instant, I went from being the only person with a cane to that being the norm. Because looking around the room, I saw a handful of sighted people, but really it was, it was a blind majority space. Andrew Leland has slowly but steadily been losing his eyesight. He first noticed a problem years ago as a teenager. Medical testing would eventually confirm what for him began as a self-diagnosis, a condition called retinitis pigmentosa. His reason for showing up at this convention of the National Federation of the Blind, or NFB. And, and I needed to take some refuge, I guess. And so I kind of pulled off to the side of the hallway and and just took a moment to gather myself, and I did find myself crying. I think it was that feeling of belonging that I had no idea that I was so hungry for. But being there, you know, I was no longer the outlier. And the other part of, I think, the emotional overwhelm was just the fact that I didn't even realize how painful that experience of being the outlier had been for me. Retinitis pigmentosa is a rare, progressive genetic disease its first symptom is often what people call night blindness, and it was indeed night blindness that tipped him off back in his rambunctious and sometimes risky teen years growing up in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Andrew has essentially known where this was heading since he first searched the Internet about it. Those were the days when you had to use a dial-up modem, trying to figure out what was happening to him. In adolescence, which is the time that most people with retinitis pigmentosa or RP notice a visual difference, is when I first noticed it too. I have a very classic progression of this disease. As one does in adolescence, often, you know, you get more independence. And so you're doing things like hanging out with your friends in the woods at night or going on your own to a movie theater. These were new experiences for me anyway. So it wasn't like, oh, I've been running around the woods at night my whole life. And now suddenly, why is it so hard? You know, I think this was the first time that as teenagers, we were going up onto the hillside behind my friend's house to break the rules. On Constant Wonder, we often look for the awe and wonder we encounter by way of our physical senses. But we also consider marvels that emerge even because of sensory loss. Human resilience of mind and body in the face of these challenges is often a source of awe and a wellspring even of joy along our various personal journeys. In this episode of our podcast, we'll get to know Andrew Leland... Progressive blindness is pivotal to his story. It's a difficult story, to be sure. But we'll also find more than ample reason for awe in the stories he has to tell about the vision he has acquired from his relationships, from his marriage and fatherhood, even from the strangers he encounters while carrying his white stick. Andrew Leland is a writer, audio producer, editor, and journalist. He's author of The Blind Country, a memoir at the end of sight. I was in a part of this crew of kids in Santa Fe who were the kind of bohemian, intellectual, artsy types. And as a corollary to that identity, there was a lot of marijuana and some occasional psychedelic drugs as well. And so we were all frequently up on the hill behind our friend Hank's house doing these things. And, and I think often what my friends 
thought was just, oh, Andrew is so high. Like that's why he's bumping into the trees. I kind of played along with that. So in some cases I even played it up as like, that's that's my role in the club, right? I'm just the guy who smoked too much pot and so I'm bumping into trees so much. And, and night blindness is a term that we sometimes use. You were less able to see at night. Yeah, it is a little confusing because one thinks, well, if you can see during the day, why would you see worse at night? But But the way that the retina works is there's two different kinds of cells in the retina, the rods and cones. And the way RP works is the rods die first. And the rod cells are the, the photoreceptor cells in the retina that are responsible for night vision and for peripheral vision. And so because, unbeknownst to me, my rod cells had begun to decay, during the day, my cone cells were healthy and I could see just fine. But at night, my dark adaptation was lacking. And so all my friends' eyes would adjust and they could see the moon shining off of the distant pinyon tree in the rock and pick out a path. But for me, just imagine a situation when you're not dark adapted, whether it's an extremely dark situation or the, you know, there's some flash of light that hits you and it makes your eyes unable to adapt for a moment. It's sort of like that as a permanent condition in, in low light situations that for other folks are quite easy to adapt to. Yeah. Your friends were just as oblivious as the trees were, to the status of your rods and cones. Sure, as, as I was, in fact. I mean, I, I was a little less oblivious, I guess, because I was experiencing it, but I didn't know what was happening. I was far too young doing drugs. You know, I thought to myself, well, maybe it's that, right? Maybe I've rattled the doors of perception too hard here, and that's why I'm having so much trouble seeing. But of course, my friends were doing the same thing, and they were just fine. But you really weren't all that slow to start figuring this out, though, and, and pretty much on your own. Yeah. I went through all these different hypotheses, and then my dad, being an early adopter of media technology, had bought me a modem. So it gave me an opportunity to do some early pre-Google Googling and found a website around that time as a teenager that really indicated this is probably RP. You know, there's not a lot of reasons why someone would suddenly develop night blindness as a teenager. And so I kind of self-diagnosed and then it wasn't until my first year of college that I was home for a semester and I finally was complaining enough about it that my mom said, okay, let's go to an eye doctor. And I was officially formally diagnosed with RP. Oh, so she went with you. Yeah. I finally got to UCLA to see a retinal specialist with my mom. And we're sitting there in his office and he gives me the, the formal diagnosis. You have RP. You're going to very gradually lose your sight over the course of your life, essentially. And then there was a sort of series of follow-up questions. You know, do you smoke? And at that time I did smoke cigarettes. And he said, oh, you've got to stop because it's terrible for your ocular health. And then he asked me if I could see stars. And... I thought, you know, come to think of it, no. I was aware that I couldn't see stars, but it was just one of these many things that had almost imperceptibly become a part of my landscape. But they happened so gradually that it's not like a big milestone where it's like, oh, what's going on? I can't see stars. It's just this, again, like a kind of a cloud of phenomena that I'm very, very gradually coming to terms with and even noticing. My mom kind of sat up straight in her chair and said, oh, you can't see stars? And for some reason, that was the moment that really brought it home for my mom. Do you happen to have a pretty good, clear recollection of your initial response those first days after the diagnosis? I, such a massive sort of fateful puzzle piece comes along your way. And I mean, were you defiant, uh, disoriented, maybe stoic, denial, that sort of thing? You know, I didn't doubt the reality of it. I didn't think like I was somehow going to be an exception, a person with RP who doesn't lose his vision. But... It also didn't feel very concrete. 
it was a distant and sort of hard to fathom possibility, a little bit like death, right? Like I think in your 20s, you're conscious of the fact that you're probably mortal, but I think absent some really intense close encounters, it's easy to imagine it as this very distant possibility rather than like a you know close and intimate fact of life. Somewhere during this season of life, your future wife, Lily, enters your story. And as your relationship starts to grow, I'm just wondering if she had full knowledge of your RP. Yeah, so by the time I was in my 20s, I was working as the managing editor of The Believer magazine in San Francisco. And a friend of mine from high school put me in touch with his friend, Lily, who was moving back to the Bay Area to finish her dissertation at Berkeley we went on some dates and we fell in love. We moved in together. We adopted a dog. And eventually I proposed to her. And I think pretty early I mentioned to her, I've got this degenerative retinal disease called RP. It means I'll be blind someday. And so, yeah, I disclosed it. But to be honest, it didn't feel like a scary disclosure. And it, it didn't feel particularly threatening in any way. And she seemed to accept it, I think, in the same spirit, probably following my lead. So, Andrew, just a moment ago, I, I nearly said that Lily came in with her eyes wide open, that expression. And then I caught myself, help me if you would, uh, here just a little bit. Do I, do I need to watch my words with, with those particular kinds of figures of speech? No, in fact, the less you watch them, the better. Because the language is irretrievably visual. And our conceptions of knowledge are fundamentally visual. If you think about everything from the Enlightenment to perception, to illumination, to these more colloquial phrases, to, do you see what I mean? Um, let's take a look, let's take a closer look at what I mean. All of these things are visual and to deny a blind person or to question a blind person's access to that figurative language, I think is really doing them a disservice and it, and it creates a real impediment to clear communication. The thing I would say that is harmful and that one should avoid in one's speech is the conflation of the blind with the ignorant. You'd have to be blind not to understand what I'm saying right now. That is harmful because that exacerbates the stigma and makes blindness concomitant with ignorance. But to say, you know, it was a truly enlightening talk that I heard, that's, I think, every blind person would understand it. And, and furthermore, having hung out with a lot of blind people, including fully blind people myself, it feels so natural to me now when a blind person will say, oh, let me see that. And then you hand it to them, and then they see it. And I don't think there's anything odd about that construction at all. This is so helpful. Thank you so much. I, I, you know, I've mused on that for years, but I've never had anybody really take me by the hand and walk me through it, and it makes so much sense. Well, and I should add a caveat that like, this is my opinion, and there's, there are blind people out sure. there, I'm sure, who, who would disagree with me, but I think I'm on to something. Okay, getting back to your courtship now with Lily, I understand the two of you sometimes went dancing. Yeah, we went out dancing the night that I proposed to her, and she accepted, by the way. And I do remember putting my hand on her shoulder as we kind of found our way to our space on the dance floor, because at that time, my night blindness was getting worse. And I remember some early dates where I would sort of be white-knuckled, because I still drove during the day at the time. It was a little bit like a vampire feeling, where as the sun went down, you know, I had to race to get home, because as soon as we hit civil twilight, my safety as a driver plummeted. And I remember really that phrase sticks in my mind. Like, I, the phrase civil twilight calls up a whole period of my life of like, oh God, <laughs> it's ending, the day is ending and I'm going to become a night blind vampire. Periodically, you were supposed to check in for eye appointments. 
this is to track the degeneration of your retinas. Initially, Lily was not present for those consultations. I found myself for many years really reluctant to invite Lily to come to these every two-year eye doctor appointments, in part because we had a kid and it just was like, are we really going to like get a babysitter for a doctor's appointment or drag him along as a baby? But also I think I wasn't really sharing the experience with her yet. And I felt uncomfortable sharing the experience with her. And, and finally, I really had to push myself to say, you know what, I think it'll be an important thing for her to come along. And I was really glad I did because it did bring her into the experience more and gave us more to talk about that was more concrete rather than the, just this constant but empty sense of like, I'm still going blind over here and I have feelings about it, but I don't know how to talk about them. And at, at that visit, like at all visits, I kind of grill my doctor to to give me a clearer sense of what to expect. And you know, she's very skillful at dodging that question because she doesn't know. And she has some picture of what to expect based on my genetic profile and based on what they're seeing and based on the rate of change. But but ultimately they don't know. And the kind of best conclusion the doctor can come to is that phrase that I, I kind of latched onto slow, subtle, and present. And if you think of a decline as slow, subtle, and present, it's stymieing because it's there, but it's just, it's very subtle. And it's a thing that one can obsess over, but then weeks and months go by and there hasn't really been that much of a detectable change, but enough that you've got a sense that there's something happening. And it's really, it's difficult because it makes the process of adaptation a lot trickier because how do you adapt to something that is so slow and subtle? I want to maybe see the world a little while through the eyes of your son, Oscar. If we can just do this for a little bit, I think we should start with a film that you write about. You had watched it together with Oscar. He was about nine or 10. I've never seen this movie myself, but you know which one I'm talking about. Yeah, so we had pretty strict rules about movie nights and how much screen time he would get. And then when the COVID-19 pandemic happened, those all kind of went out the window because it was just like childcare and school sort of went out the window. And we were like, I have an idea. Let's watch a tremendous amount of cinema. But I tried to kind of be the pretentious dad who was like, but we're not going to watch, you know, Paw Patrol. He was too old for Paw Patrol by that point. I tried to get some like good criterion collection, like classics in there. And, and there was this film that I found in that vein called The Thief of Baghdad. That's this sort of classic Technicolor epic of like swashbuckling, like magic carpet rides. And part of the plot of that film is that there's a sultan who gets cursed by an evil vizier or something like that. And part of the curse is that he's blinded. And you kind of cut between scenes where there's the blinded sultan who's like a beggar and has to sort of find his way back to his original station. As soon as as his blindness is invoked, Oscar kind of points to the screen. He's like, blind! In this sort of like triumphant way, like, all right, blindness on screen, you know, which I just found so interesting that it was like not a sad thing. And he was like psyched about it. Or at least I kind of encouraged the excitement about it. I think he was just maybe just saying, wow, like blindness. And then I I kind of like gave him a fist bump, like, yeah, blind. And, and it took him a moment to be like, wait, why are we celebrating this again? But also he rolled with it because I think that's something that he's getting from me is this sense that like, we don't have to, mourn blindness. It doesn't have to be a tragedy at every turn. Like It can be something interesting, even though in that film it certainly was a punishment, as it so often is depicted in stories. And then there was another really interesting moment watching that film with him where we were cutting between scenes of the sultan in his blind state and then in his sighted state, and Oscar kind of conflated them. And like there was a moment where in his sighted state, the sultan told the princess, you know, you're the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. And Oscar said, like, well, wait, how does he know that if he's blind? 
And I just really loved that because his confusion, I thought, belied a sense that blind people can do all manner of things. Because like up until that moment, the sighted version of the Sultan had been climbing out of dungeons and like stealing boats and engaging in sword play. And I was like, all of that, he was fine with the blind guy doing that. It was just until he actually said something like, you're the most beautiful woman I've ever seen, that it, it occurred to him. He doesn't see blindness as a tragedy or even necessarily as an impediment to a rich, full, exciting life of adventure and romance. Kids can do that for us sometimes where they just have a a different take on the world that is so completely fresh. Yeah. Furthermore, I think kids of blind people grow up with blindness as normal. And I think even blind people who grow up blind all their lives are constantly made to feel abnormal, right? They're constantly made to feel excluded or, you know, a great deal of effort has to be made to include them and they're, oh, you know, there's awkwardness or there's bias. But the sighted child of a blind person, that's just who their parent is. I've heard stories of kids of blind adults who get confused that all mommies don't read with their fingers, right? Or that all dads don't need to grab their arm if they're just alone together to to make it across the parking lot, for instance. And I have to work so hard for blindness to feel normal and acceptable. And yet for Oscar, it's sort of out of the box that way. In this episode of Constant Wonder, we're visiting with Andrew Leland. He's written about his experience, with Retinitis Pigmentosa, a newly released book. It's titled The Country of the Blind, a Memoir at the End of Sight. An important uh, supporting actor, you could kind of say, in our story here is Andrew's son, Oscar, who apparently catches Andrew off guard a lot just about every time he treats his father's blindness as an expected, normal sort of thing. I'm Marcus Smith. Your son Oscar, Andrew, his socialization into the world, just as with just about every other kid, involves going to school. And I understand that at some point Oscar found a compatriot, another kid at school with a blind father. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And that other kid's dad is totally blind and is sort of a mentor for me in a lot of ways of just like, he knows the tech stuff that I'm still learning And I wonder if there's anything that Oscar's learning from that kid who's had a dad who's been fully blind his whole life, whereas Oscar's experience is more of a low-vision dad who's adapting to blindness, which is a different experience, I think. So, yeah, I I don't know a lot about whether that's all unspoken or if by now there has been a conversation. I suspect there is not any explicit conversation about it, but it's a lot of just learning by example and hearing about that kid going to a blindness convention, you know, their engagement with Braille or blind tech. And yeah, they do have a lot in common in that way. Oscar and you, I don't know if Lily was there, but at some point you're at a gathering where a Billy Collins poem is being read. Mm. And this program, a children's program, was going on and it was led by a rabbi. Didn't go so smoothly as you might have wanted, right? Yeah, we decided to send Oscar to Hebrew school and Lily and I aren't particularly observant Jews, but we felt kind of an obligation if we're going to be sending him to Hebrew school, we ought to go to some kind of services. So the first time we went to services was this children's Rosh Hashanah service. And part of the service included a reading of this Billy Collins poem, which is titled, Fall to Your Knees and Thank God for Your Eyesight. Despite myself, I just felt really uncomfortable listening to the poem. You know, it's a poem about gratitude and I am uh, no enemy of gratitude, but the refrain of that that line, which recurs over and over again in that poem, I felt a kind of physical reaction to it. It felt 
almost aggressive towards me because what am I supposed to do, right? Fall to my knees and and feel accursed for the for the loss of my eyesight or just find something else to be grateful for. And you know, I mean, I didn't even really think about it that deeply. It was more just like fall to your knees and thank God for your eyesight. Like thank God for the eyesight I still have and should I be praying to preserve this amount of vision and and does that mean that if if the disease runs its course, which medically speaking, surely it will, that somehow God has ignored me. You know, it just it just raised all these uncomfortable questions. But but again, I wasn't even going that deep with it. It was really, I just stayed with this feeling of like, this poem does not make me feel good. And it was really actually quite lovely on our walk home from the synagogue to hear that my mom, who was with us, and Oscar and Lily all had a similar reaction. And I think that moved me in part because it belied the fact that my experience was entering them more fully than I had appreciated. And that if they could feel uncomfortable from that poem as well, it meant that they understood something of what I was going through. What you're talking about here is relationships and community and bonds between people. And this becomes very important to you as you move into new experiences with the community of blind people, the National Federation of the Blind. Let's go to the convention. Tell us what that place was like. It was a world apart from anything I've experienced. Yeah, me too. So as I lost more vision, I felt a really powerful imperative growing in me to seek out other blind people and to understand more about this experience that I was increasingly inhabiting. Talking to folks, the National Federation of the Blind kept coming up as a place that was important to understand and and would be interesting for me to explore. And I flew to Orlando to this giant convention center hotel where 3,000 blind people had all gathered for the week-long convention of the National Federation of the Blind. The moment I walked through the doors of the convention center, I, I just felt completely overwhelmed because in an instant, I went from being the only person with a cane to that being the norm. Because looking around the room, I saw a handful of sighted people, but really it was, it was a blind majority space. There were six-year-olds, there were blind people in wheelchairs with their canes kind of extended over their motorized wheelchairs. There were like blind couples, blind families, you know, like sighted kids with blind parents, blind kids with sighted parents, every race, gender, class, age. It's just like an incredibly rich swath of humanity whose only thing they shared in common was blindness, as far as I could tell. And I spent a couple days there just immersing myself and just meeting people and going to the Braille Book Fair and the blind ham radio operators meet up and the all the, the general sessions and the meetings. And, and it was just a, an incredible and totally overwhelming experience. Well, you have written that it was super intense. You talk about your sniffling. You talk about <laughs> uh, finding yourself overcome with emotion, having to kind of pull yourself out of the, the stream of humanity and find a, a safe spot up against a wall. And um, why were you overcome? Why? If there were tears, what did those tears mean? Yeah, almost immediately, I walked into the center and I had that sort of initial shock of like, oh wow, this really is all blind people. There's a there's a shift in the way one inhabits space when you enter a blind space because people are going to kind of gently plow into you a lot, and you know there's just a lot of canes. It's not like you're in any danger, but it, that felt intense to me. Like I felt like I was caught up in the flow of this river of, of blind people and I needed to take some refuge, I guess. And so I kind of pulled off to the side of the hallway and, and just took a moment to gather myself and I did find myself crying. And I think it was that feeling of belonging that I had no idea that I was so hungry for. But being there, you know, I was no longer the outlier. I think the emotional overwhelm 
was just the fact that I didn't even realize how painful that experience of being the outlier had been for me. I don't think I was even fully aware of it. I mean, clearly, I, I recognized the fact that, generally speaking, I'm the only person with a white cane in most spaces that I go in. But until I was in that space where the sighted people were the minority, I had no idea how how heavily that had been weighing on me. And so I think the emotion came from a sudden awareness of that experience and its reversal. You had another experience where tears were also present. It had to do with experiencing uh, some art. It's called London Midsummer Number One. A little bit about what I would see if I were face-to-face with that painting. And this also pulls you into, the, into association where you're no longer an outlier, you're, you're belonging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I heard about an artist named Emily Gassio who was um, a sighted artist and then she was in a bike accident and lost her vision very suddenly overnight and was going to change careers. Once she had recovered from the accident, thought, okay, well, maybe I'll be a massage therapist or something. And then got good blindness training from a blindness training center in Minneapolis and ended up finishing art school and then getting her MFA in sculpture and now is like an international artist. So I made an appointment to go meet her at an exhibition she was having in New York. And she gave me a tour of the gallery. And then at the end, we stopped at, at this image that she had made called London Midsummer. London is the name of her guide dog. The way she makes this particular type of work, you know, she's got a really varied oeuvre, but she uses a very simple tool called a sensational blackboard where you, you take some relatively heavy stock paper and you put it on a hard rubber mat And then she presses down with a ballpoint pen and can draw on the paper. And in doing so, the rubber prevents the paper from tearing and she's essentially embossing the page. And so then she can feel where the mark of the pen is. And then she fills in color using Crayolas, which leave a very tactile and waxy residue. And she's very meticulously organized her crayons so that she knows exactly which color is which. And so she's able to create these really beautiful images. And so the drawing is of her guide dog, but she often renders her guide dog in this sort of quasi-anthropomorphic state where it's up on its hind legs and it's sort of got human features, but it's definitely still a dog. So I, I still have about six degrees of central vision with decent acuity. I use a white cane because without it, I'm going to trip over things, but I can do things like visually take in a drawing. And even though I almost like stepped on several of her sculptures along the way, you know, once I'm standing on, in front of that wall, I was able to, to take in that image visually. And there's actually several figures of London, the guide dog, and they are dancing around a maypole in this very pastoral scene where there's trees and the leaves have fallen and there's grass. But the maypole is actually the white cane that a blind person will use. And the lines connecting the dogs to the, to the cane are, in fact, leashes. And they're just dancing in, you know, in a scene that you can find in our history of any kind of like rite of spring, right? This like very celebratory, free, pastoral, just lovely image. And I found it so moving because for me, the cane and the guide dog are among the most stressful parts of the experience of blindness for me. If there's one thing that I find the most scary and intractable, it's the prospect of getting from point A to point B without vision. And I think that that's true for a lot of blind people. The travel is tough. And and yet in this image, like these two primary trappings of what people in the blindness industry call orientation and mobility, O&M, like cane travel or, or, or guide dog travel, are just sort of liberated and set free in the landscape in this beautiful overflow of joyous 
expression. And then knowing too where that image came from, like from her, just knowing her whole story and then standing next to her and like feeling her presence in it with the way she carries herself as a blind woman, the whole thing just got to me and I, uh, I had to wipe my eyes. I regard people who cry at paintings a bit like I regard people who cry at the symphony. I don't doubt their emotion, but it seems wild to me that something so formal could create such a feeling. This was utterly spontaneous, and uh, it was okay by you to just tear up. Yeah, you know, I think I do bring a cooler eye to art usually, and I do think of myself as a bit of a formalist, which is to say I like thinking about art in conceptual terms. And I think if something's going to get me on the emotional level, for, for whatever reason, it's more often narrative, whether it's a book or a film. But in this case, I think... I had found a narrative in the still image of these dancing dogs because it connected to Emily's story and to my story. Just that moment on that day that I was standing in that gallery, it all coalesced and galvanized into this moment that that was deeply emotional. Nothing really ever says you have to learn Braille. And so I'd like to talk about that. Uh, I understand that what with all the technology available these days for blind people, not everybody in your situation will even bother. And so why did you? Yeah, yeah. My, uh, My state commission for the blind kind of dissuaded me from learning it. And it's true that a lot of folks who lose their vision as adults don't end up using Braille for much more than spice jars, if that. And one of the reasons for that is... It's really tough. It's hard to gain the necessary finger sensitivity. And there are folks who, for physical reasons, can't develop the the proper finger sensitivity. And even if you do progress past that point where you're able to learn the alphabet, there's a whole slate of contractions to learn. And then even beyond that, reading speed is really hard to get up to a point that's anywhere close to what you've had as a visual reader in most cases. One can use a screen reader, which is a piece of software that reads aloud any digital text you might offer it, which includes millions of books that are now available digitally. You know, so, so I know plenty of really successful blind writers who never learned Braille and are doing just fine. And yet, the more I, I thought about Braille and the more I talked to blind people who use Braille, I am enough of a word nerd and a lifelong reader and writer and just passionate language geek that I just thought, why wouldn't I do this? For me, close reading is such a joy. And what better way to close read than with your fingers, I found. And so I made the commitment to do it. It took me about two years to get to the point where I was actually just picking up a book I might want to read in Braille and reading it incredibly slowly. But I'm chipping away at it. And every night I read for a couple minutes at least to just keep my fingers in the mix. And it's very much like like any practice, like like a foreign language or like... A sport where you know if you do it every day, you kind of keep up that fluency, and so it's not yet part of my daily workflow the way that the cane is or the screen reader. There are all of these blindness tools and skills that I do rely on every day now, even even with a little bit of vision. Braille is still a little bit of a hobby that I know someday will be crucial, but isn't quite there yet. But I but I keep it up because I know how important it is. And there was something about the slowness of reading that really tickled Oscar once. 
Yeah. One piece of advice that I got from Braille readers was to read easy children's books, in part because it's so frustrating to pick up a grown-up novel that I might want to read and then it might take me you know, 16 months to finish it at the rate that I read. So there's some satisfaction of being able to get to the end of a picture book, even if there are no pictures. And so I did that with Oscar and I, we found a, a book called The Big Orange Splot that sounded promising and it took me forever to get through it. In fact, like I think it was well past bedtime and we kind of gave up and f- said we would finish it later. I think at the time he was in first grade and he just was delighted in how much of a first grader I was in trying to get through it. Because it's really like, you, I, I feel like a first grader reading still. I mean, I'm a little more fluent now, but you know, like once upon a time, right? I'm doing the phonics almost to get through it. And he just thought that was hilarious. <laughs> so you're learning Braille. Somebody remotely is going to correct your efforts because you have mm-hmm. a Braille machine and you're, you're actually making Braille. And uh, mm-hmm. there's a relationship even over the long divide there. Yeah, I had a, a sighted Braille teacher at first and I... I mean, I wasn't paying him because I was getting, you know, taxpayer dollars were paying him, but I fired him anyway because he just didn't, he didn't have experience as a Braille reader. He was doing it just sort of theoretically and I, and I, I was learning bad habits. So then I found a, a blind Braille instructor through the Hadley Center in Illinois, which is a wonderful resource for anyone who wants to learn Braille. They sent me a Braille typewriter and this talking book player that would play recordings of words that I was supposed to type and Braille books that I was supposed to read and record myself reading. And we just had this learning by mail experience where I would mail her my assignments. And and it did occur to me that as I would read over her comments on my work that her fingers had very likely touched those same words. And there was something, no pun intended, quite touching about that experience because even though maybe your correspondent has held the paper and folded it. You know, something about the fact that her fingers had touched not just the paper, but every letter, every little morsel of punctuation. There was a new kind of intimacy to that that I found really lovely and interesting. One time I went to an archive at the Perkins School in Massachusetts, which is the first school for the blind in the country. And some of the oldest Braille books on the planet are in that archive. And there was an old edition of the Bible there was a, a passage in the in the Bible where Jesus cures the blind man of Bethsaida's sight by rubbing saliva into his eyes. And that passage, I think it was the word blind, in fact, that had really almost been rubbed away. And it reminded me of like being in the New York City subway system where there's a paper subway map on the wall, and then the station you're in is almost like looks like it's been burned away because thousands of people have poked their finger right there and said, okay, so we're here and we got to go uptown. And, but it was like that, but it was like blind readers stopping and reading and rereading that one spot that had worn it down and worn it away. And I just thought, you know, that doesn't happen with print books. That is such a tangible and living example of, of a reader's attention that is, that is burned into the archive in, in such an amazing way. Using a white cane and reading Braille, important though these are, they don't even trace a small part of the learning curve that Andrew Leland has been on. Andrew Leland, author of The Blind Country, A Memoir at the End of Sight. What you're about to hear, as he reports some of his experiences while at the Colorado School for the Blind, is truly astounding to me in terms of accessibility and possibility. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. 
You did some residential training at the Colorado School for the Blind. This is really significant, and I'm going to go to the sensational thing right off the bat, the idea that there are wood shops with power saws uh, there. You, you talk about that at some length. What's going on there? Unfortunately, the woodshop teacher wasn't there. They were between teachers when I was there, so I didn't get a chance to do that myself. But it is a provocative move. The NFB is nothing if not provocative. Um, but I've spoken to enough people who have been through that program that I, I believe that it's safe. I don't think it's sensationalist for them to have a wood shop. And I think part of the point of a place like the Colorado Center for the Blind, which is where I went, but um, there's two other centers in Minneapolis and one in Ruston, Louisiana. The argument there is that blindness is an incidental characteristic. It's a neutral characteristic. It's not a tragedy. It's not a thing that prevents you from full participation in society. But basically, they just need accommodations. Alternative techniques is the, is the phrase that often gets used. And it took me a while to appreciate the power of that idea of, of an alternative technique. But you know, in a wood shop, I, I don't have a lot of the specifics because, like I said, I didn't spend a lot of time there. But there are ways to make a wood shop safe and techniques to make a wood shop safe, tools for a blind person. And it just takes a little bit of a reframing from what a sighted person is understanding about a wood shop. And that's true of navigating across a city in traffic. That's true of other things they do there, which includes, yeah, like sending students off into the city on their own, totally blind, wearing sleep shades to find their way back. It includes having them cook a meal for 60 people with razor sharp chef's knives and gas ranges that don't have any, you know, special limitations on them. It's a it's a kitchen like any kitchen, and you learn how to do it. It's one of those things that I think when you first approach the idea as a sighted person or as a blind person who doesn't have this experience, it feels provocative, it feels dangerous, it feels ridiculous. And then, you know, as somebody who spent a month there, you know, the, the, the normal course of stay is nine months. I didn't have a chance to do the full thing. But after spending even a month there, I have such a deep appreciation for the reality of that situation that with the proper alternative techniques, you can figure out how to cut a piece of wood safely. You can figure out how to navigate traffic safely. You can figure out how to dice an onion and fry an omelet, whatever you need to do. Emily Gassio, the artist we were talking about, had, had a great line that she told me. She said, when I think about blindness, I think about problem solving. And all of these things, from operating a skill saw to crossing a street, it's a problem. You know, How are we going to do this without vision? What tools do we need? What techniques do we need to do it? And nine times out of 10, these problems are solvable. Yeah. So when I was a kid, I was absolutely terrified of being thrown into the deep end of the pool as a means of teaching me to, to, to swim. And at this mm. residential training you did, they had this thing called the independent drop. That's the closest yeah. analogy I can think of <laughs> being thrown into the deep end of the pool. Absolutely. Uh, were you scared? Uh, yeah, I didn't even think they were going to make me do it because you only tend to do that assignment at the end of nine months. But I had kind of solicited it. I said, you know, I can only stay for a month and I want to do some kind of a challenge. And they said, okay, we'll, we'll think of something for you. And then they, they said, actually, yeah, we think, you, we think you're ready. We think you can do a version of this assignment, which is where you're wearing totally vision, including sleep shades, because, you know, most blind people have some light perception and they really want you to learn to do things purely non-visually and not rely even on the ability to see if there's some light coming from, you know, from the left or whatever. So you're wearing these these blackout shades, you get in the van. The centers are, by and large, entirely run by blind people. There's a handful of sighted employees who are not in positions of leadership. And so one of them drove me around in circles, finally get to the destination, which my travel teachers have agreed upon as like a good place for me to, to stop. 
I get out. I have no idea where I am. I know I'm in somewhere in the Denver metro area, and uh, I have a, a cell phone. I can't use a smartphone. If I if there's an emergency, I can call the center on this flip phone. The rule is I can only ask one person one question for help. Other than that, I have to find my way back on my own. I don't want to say I cheated, but my one question, I made some statements that uh, were interpreted as questions leading to the information that I wanted without my technically asking a question, but it was a little sneaky. But I still am incredibly, <laughs> incredibly proud of myself for pulling that off. And, and the confidence it gave me, not only in my life now, but just when I, when I feel that anxiety about the further vision loss to come, you know, the fact that under sleep shades, I could do that. It just opens up a whole world for me. And I think, okay, well, as a reporter, you know, how am I going to continue my work? Like, if I can do that, like, what's stopping me from jumping on a plane and going and reporting a story somewhere I've never been? There's nothing. I'm going to keep doing this work for the rest of my life. You've said that you actually have gotten to the point where you're at ease, that you feel whole, that you feel complete. And yeah. I, I know that the, the, the prototypical response that, uh, of sighted people to blind people is that there's a deficit, there's a lack, and you're talking about completeness. Yeah, the, the privileging of sight is so profound in our culture that it almost goes without saying. It's almost absurd to even suggest that the blind experience might be whole and complete because we just think of the visual as the primary way of understanding reality. Like if you want to know what is in a room, then you present a picture of it, right? And my experience under sleep shades for that month and my increasing daily experience of blindness, I can be in that room and know what objects are there and have a relationship with them and inhabit it. Sure, there may be visual details that I don't have access to, but the experience of being in that room and of picking up the cup or washing the plate or finding the door, like that does feel complete to me. And I'm happy to know about, somebody tells me, oh, there's a um, Bon Jovi poster on the wall. Like, cool, that's, that's interesting to hear. But I don't think there needs to necessarily be this constant sense of loss around blindness or exclusion. And what's so powerful about places like the Colorado Center is that it's a blind space. An entire former YMCA building where there's probably 60 or 70 people on any given day, three of them might be sighted. And so in a space like that, there's no loss, there's no lack. It's a full, complete, autonomous zone where everyone has what they need. Everybody's going about their business. There's nothing magical about it. There's nothing tragic about it. It's just a place where people are doing their work and having a community and living their lives together. And that is such a profound experience and something that is possible to take out of a place like Colorado Center and bring into my daily life and realize that I might not be able to access the world in the same way you do, but with a different technique, with a different orientation, I'm still fully whole. Is it true? Is it really true that you tried not to enjoy visual stimuli for a long season of your life because you knew it was going away and that just seemed too poignant and painful? Yeah, yeah, I did. It felt cheesy almost to appreciate visual things. And it's cheesy, but also it felt painful. And I felt a sort of rising panic about what that loss would mean for me. And then I went to the eye doctor in Boston and they told me essentially, you're probably not going blind as quickly as you were originally told. And there are a hundred asterisks on that. But but basically the message I got was that the rate of decline wasn't going to accelerate. 
if I've got 6% now, there's no reason to think I'll have 0% next month. And it's probably going to just be going at the same rate. So that's all to say that I'm still going blind. It's not like they told me that I didn't have RP, but but it did kind of give me a feeling of sightedness back that that surprised me where I thought, oh, okay, well, maybe maybe things aren't rushing away as quickly. And then that let me accept the vision that I had a little bit more, for a moment anyway. And so I was walking from the hotel I was staying in next to the hospital back to the train to go back home. And I had this very odd visual epiphany where... I just felt like I could accept the vision that I still had, even if I knew it was going away. And it was this visual epiphany where I just felt my vision like air molecules sort of ranging across Boston Common, rolling over the the low walls and the stones and the pathways and the joggers and the sky and the the patches of ice. It was a great experience for me because I hadn't realized until that moment how much I had been resisting vision. And I write in the book that I'm as stymied sometimes by the vision I still have as I am by the vision I've lost. I don't know what to do with all of this residual vision sometimes as I I work so hard to accept blindness. And in that moment, it was a feeling of realizing that I need to accept blindness, but I also need to accept the vision and the sightedness that I still have too. And it feels very paradoxical, but it's actually crucial to my ability to be present and to be mindful and to be aware and awake in this experience. Oscar is very important to you in the, in this whole saga of your development through the years here as your your sight has been going away. Yeah, he is. I think because he doesn't have to work to accept it. It's a given that his dad is is blind or low vision and that helps me accept it. You know, there's no lack for him because that's who I am. Whereas I have to work and Lily has to work to make this adaptation and make this transformation, he offers a model effortlessly of of accepting it and understanding it on, uh, in some ways more than we do. And so that does, I think, make him a really crucial figure for me in my journey to understand and accept blindness. The completeness, the holistic kind of health that you have described in spite of decreased visual acuity and all of that. And, and you, towards the end of your book, tell us about Oscar coming and snuggling up. You felt completely washed out, totally spent. You were in bed with your glasses off. You, there was a chance to watch a video with Lily. It, it sounds like a kind of a ratty way to end a day. Yeah, so one thing that I've noticed more recently is that even if my vision feels stable in terms of like I'm still roughly seeing through the same sized porthole, my visual stamina has decreased a lot. And at the end of a day, if I'm forcing myself to do things like read large print or you know de- decipher a piece of mail that I've gotten, uh, my eyes will burn out a lot more quickly. And I was having that experience, maybe for one of the first times in a really significant way one night. And, and then Lily started watching this video that we had been talking about that I really wanted to see, but I just felt like I can't do it. It was like when you just lifted weights and your arms tell you, nope, not, not lifting one more. And I kind of started to have a panic attack a little bit of just that feeling like, you know, lying in bed in the dark, of this sort of claustrophobic feeling of things closing in. And I fell asleep before it could get too overwhelming. And then when I woke up in the morning, I was woken up by Oscar climbing into bed between us and my glasses were still off. I don't even think I really opened my eyes or if I did, I, you know, I really just saw as one does with one's glasses off, just you know, vague shapes. But I was struck by the completeness of the experience, of the tactile, the olfactory, 
the auditory, but even beyond the the sensory, the, just the completeness of the emotional experience of consciousness of just awareness being with my family, the people I love more than anyone else in the world, and how not being able to see that scene visually didn't matter at all. I saw the scene with my being beyond vision and not in some like transcendent, psychedelic third eye way, but just in the way that one can enjoy one's family in that very direct way without needing to visually scrutinize them. Thanks to Andrew Leland for sharing some of his life with us today. He's author of The Country of the Blind, a memoir at the end of sight. This episode of Constant Wonder was produced by Eric Schultzka with help from Mamie Teeples and Camden Lamb. Sound design was by Gracie Davis. I'm Marcus Smith. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.